Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We we ask and invite your spirit to be with us, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, and may we effectively represent the truth about you, we pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 11 in the quarterly, the book of Luke, uh, today, uh, which is titled The Kingdom of God. But before we get into the lesson, I received this email this week from uh, Rhonda Hodges, and Rhonda is a, uh, a follower of our class and supporter of this message who lives in Montrose, Colorado and puts a uh, display of our DVDs and books in her window of her store and, and gives, uh, gives um, uh, our materials away to those who ask. And she has a daughter who is named Sammy who just finished the sixth grade and attends a, a local evangelical Christian school and she had had permission um, from the, uh, the principal to allow the daughter to... Um, attend uh, Bible classes at home before she went to school each morning. So she taught her Bible at home and then went, her, went to school uh, for the rest of the day. And uh, I'm going to pick up her, her email at, at this point. It's, uh, oh, and she taught her in her Bible class each morning from Brad Cole's God's Character, our Sabbath school class, Fundamental Focus, and then some of, um, of um, uh, Randy Roberts' uh, sermons out at Loma Linda. It says, I prayed for wisdom to know what to do for Sammy's last Bible assignment. I was impressed to have her write an essay coming from the perspective of Jesus asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? She completed her essay with cover illustration entitled Thursday, the day before her last day of school. We prayed God, we prayed to God for an indication if he would, if it would be a good idea to share her essay with her principal or not. Well, the very next day, Friday morning, the chapel, her principal read the very same scripture. Uh, Sam, Sammy described chapel that morning like this in regards to his reading the question, who do you say that I am? The principal read the disciples' answers and didn't answer the question really. He said that there is nothing about you that can make God love you. Sammy said her mouth dropped open. He said that we are not acceptable in God's sight and only by what Jesus did can God accept us. We did deliver her essay to the principal. We are praying uh, that his mind be opened and he will be willing to investigate further after reading her essay. Uh, I've attached her essay. Blessings to you and your staff. Thanks for the wonderful ministry. Would you like to hear her essay? Okay, she's uh, just finished the sixth grade. It's only about a page long. It says, my mom gave me two simple questions to answer for the end of uh, year Bible project. My project is to summarize all the things I've learned uh, with an essay. The questions were coming from the perspective of Jesus saying, who do, who do you think I am and what is the gospel to you? Of all the questions I've answered, these two are the simplest but yet the most complicated. Here's my answer. There are a lot of different beliefs out there, such as what people think of Jesus, but this particular question is addressing one person, which is me. I support my answer with evidence based on the Bible, Scripture, 100%. Jesus is the very begotten Son of God. The answer is plain and simple, but could there be more under the obvious answer. Jesus is the exact representation of his Father, meaning that his character is the same as God the Father. God sent his Son into the world that he might free us from the bondage of sin and its destructive grip that it has on us. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. I have a question also. If God gets so angry over our sins, and if Jesus is exactly like the Father, then at the cross, wouldn't Jesus kill his enemies and punish those who were torturing him? If you look through the judgmental perspective, that would make sense. But if you look at the bigger picture, from the Genesis to Revelation, you will see that God isn't mad at anyone. I often see God as a great physician who wants us to take the remedy for our sins. This is having 
the likeness of Christ in you. I also see God as a perfect father who wants us to trust him with our lives. God does not punish his wicked children in hell forever. He loves us too much for that to even cross it. He loves us too much for that to even cross his mind. His wrath is just plainly letting us go. I personally think wrath should be replaced with some other words such as pity or sadness. The word wrath makes people form a totally different view of God because on this earth, wrath in our dictionary means anger of some sort. God's world is different than ours, and sometimes words he used to represent something got misused, misunderstood, and formed false images of God in people's minds. Like a father, though, like a father, though, God does discipline his children if he has to. There was yet another part of the question and asked, what is the gospel? My understanding is that God is not the kind of person his enemies have portrayed him to be. He is not the liar Satan has said God was in the garden. And he isn't the wrathful, arbitrary, and severe judge in the end In the end, either. His judgment is based on love and is way beyond our level of thinking. This is my understanding of Jesus and the gospel. This is a larger view to me, and I am proud to know such a loving knowledge about God's true character. I really hope that such knowledge will spread to the people around me. Wasn't that nice? Yep, yep, that's beautiful. So, Sammy, thank you for, for writing that and sharing that. So we are looking at our, our lesson, the book of Luke, uh, the, the question, and really her, her essay segues beautifully into the, the, the lesson today, which is the title, The Kingdom of God. And when you hear this title, The Kingdom of God, what comes to mind? In the first paragraph, the lesson states, the kingdom of God is an expression of what God had done in history for the human race as he deals with the problem of sin and brings the great controversy with Satan to an ultimate and decisive end. And as I read that, I don't disagree with that factually, but I thought there's not any substance to that. It's without definition, and it too easily leads people to perhaps conclude that God's kingdom is about might and power. It's what he's done in the past and what he's going to do to get rid of sin in the future. Well, it's true. It is. Oh, that's all. But what did he do in the past? And how does he do it? And, and what methods does he use? And how will he get rid of sin in the future? It doesn't say. So, as you think of the answer, what is the kingdom of God? What references come to mind? What, what do you base that answer upon? And so I thought we'd do something we don't often do in here. And that is just take a whole bunch of biblical texts that use the phrase, the kingdom of God and unpack how each one of those are used and see if we get some enlightenment on this idea of the kingdom of God. Yes? First, anytime, anytime I hear the word kingdom, my, my mind automatically goes to earthly kingdoms. I mean, that, that's just that's how my DNA is wired. It's just being rewired, but I know it's almost instantaneous, the earthly kingdom, monarchy, uh, imposed law, etc. Dictator. Dictator, yes. Caesar, emperor, king. Yeah, might and power. Yeah. Yep, yep. Colonialistic, whatever. And of course, as God communicates to us, he has to use words that we can comprehend. And so kingdom can absolutely mean that, but it can also mean everything un- which is under your authority, mm-hmm. rule. And the question then is, how does God rule? And, and, what, and the danger, as you're suggesting, is we're so wired into seeing things through the lens of the world that we immediately just project how worldly king, kings rule onto God and suggest, well, that's he rules the same way. Yes? I think that expression is used by God 
to make us understand that our grasp of things is different than reality. The kingdom of God is the reality, but he used that just to show that there are two different understandings of reality. My kingdom is not your kingdom, or my it's not the same. Yeah, my kingdom is not of this world, yeah. Right, it's not your understanding isn't right. So let's, let's look at some Bible passages. We'll start um, with, with Mark 4, 26 to 28, then Mark 4, 30 to 32, and Luke 13, 20 to 21, these three together. So he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is Jesus in all three of these talking. So Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And the next one. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches, the birds of the air can perch in its shade. And then the third. And again, he asked, and what shall I, and and what, and what? Excuse me. What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked its way through the dough. All right, that's the first three. What do you get from the kingdom of God from these three examples? The kingdom of God is like. It's like this. What's it like? It grows. It grows how? Every one of them is it grows starting from a small uh, death, you might say. <laughs> to uh, a fullness of life. And it's pervasive. It grows internally first before it's evidenced externally. Okay, that's true too. <clears throat> yes? The neat thing is it takes, but only so it can give. Okay. It changes wherever it is. It changes wherever it's put. Yeah, do you notice though that... Yes, do you notice all these are acting in harmony with design law? This is all natural stuff. It's not, the, the, the farmer doesn't work hard. He said, in fact, the very first one, he says, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, it grows. In other words, the work and the energy of the farmer doesn't make it grow. The yeast in the flour doesn't make the flour, uh, the woman's hard work doesn't make it happen. There's an energy built into the reality that comes from the creator, the designer, and when we are in harmony with his design, things grow and heal. This is not a system of, well, if you do all the right, if you, if you do all the right rules and then something good, no, it's design law that's being described. That's the, the kingdom of God operates naturally like this. Keep that in mind as we go through some other ones now. Matthew, 12:28 But if I drive out demons by the spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you If I drive out demons by the spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you What do you learn about the kingdom of God from this passage What is the kingdom of God doing in this passage so, so you notice that the, the first three passages I said functionally, what's happening? What's God's doing? It's something's growing, as you said. Some, but how is it growing? It's growing without the effort of human beings growing. It's something's built into the design of this. Now, what's functionally happening here? Displacing evil. Sense being eradicated. Yes. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So driving out evil, 
Sin being eradicated? It, it, would, would you, could you say things are being restored back to the way God wants them to be or back to God's design? Things out of harmony are being put in harmony. Things uh, deformed are, are conformed. Is, is this what's happening with the Spirit of God coming? Healing, restoration, regeneration. The mind is being set right. You, is that what's happening when he's casting out demons in the minds of men? And he's removing their excuse as well. Because they don't, they, he's removed the deceptive power, let's say, of those demons. So now they should be able to see freely. So this is right on, right on time. The question is, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God. Next question, which is what Linda's saying over here. How does the Spirit of God work? What's his method? Truth, Truth, love, and freedom. Yes, remember Zechariah? Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord, and the Spirit is the Spirit of, as you said, truth, truth, love, freedom. This is how it works. To do what? To heal the hearts and minds of men, enlighten, ennoble, regenerate, and love, take away selfishness and fear. Can God win the war? with evil by using might and power. Well, what does a win look like for God? A changed heart, a changed mind. A changed heart and a changed mind. Changed in what direction? Changed to be like what? The original design. Yes, yes. So it's love, truth, freedom, like Christ in character, this is what a win looks like for God. Can you get that? Can you get intelligent beings to love, trust you, and live in harmony with the law of love by threat, coercion, and force? Notice that this is why it's by the Spirit. You can't get it by the exercise of might, force, and threat. So what do we learn about? God's kingdom is the kingdom of love and truth. Frees and delivers those who partake of it. And those solidified in opposition can't stand to be around it. And they flee from it. And the demons fled. Matthew 19.24 Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What's being taught about the kingdom? Well, you need a couple of historical facts before you can really understand this one. Fact one. In the day of Christ, the religious establishment indoctrinated the minds of the people with an idea that health and wealth were evidences of being righteous and right with God. So the rich not only found earthly comfort and security in their financial riches, they found spiritual and eternal security as evidence that they were, had, had no sin in their life and they were right for eternity. So it was an evidence of spiritual security as well. That's fact one. Fact two... The eye of the needle is not speaking of a tool one uses to sew thread. It, yes, at city walls, and this time in Earth's, in Earth's history, the, the cities would have walls to protect them from bandits and raiders, and at night the gates would close, and there would be a small doorway opened either in the gate or next to the gate that one person, one man could walk through at a time, and that gate was called the eye of the needle. And a camel, if you, you were coming in as a caravan, you would have to get off your camel, and the camel would have to get down on its knees and crawl through on its knees to get through. And it was easier, and so what he's saying here, it's easier to get a camel to kneel down and crawl through the eye of the needle than it is to get a rich man to kneel down and deny that his riches are evidences of his righteousness. See, this is what he's really saying here. So... 
What do we learn about the kingdom of God then from this passage? You put all that together? It's about a change of heart. It's not about working hard to get a, a, um, a, uh, a, a big house, a nice car, uh, a big stock portfolio. It's not about working hard. You can't work hard to get righteous. It's about a change of heart. It's about humbling oneself. It's about surrender to our Creator. Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight to 32. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and, and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The first, they answered. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. What do you learn about the kingdom of God from this passage? How many people who realize their need are more inclined to go to God and they don't? Okay, you're at the last end of the paragraph. Go back to the first, the two sons. Go back to the first. Son said, no, Dad, I'm not, but then he does. The other son said, yes, Dad, I will, but he doesn't. Who, enter, who enters the kingdom here? Not the ones who give lip service. Not the ones who give lip service. God's kingdom is about reality. What actually is. Not what one proclaims, declares, claims, or names. There's a whole naming theology out there. Name it and claim it. Name it and claim it. It's not about that. It's about the reality of the condition of the heart and mind of people. Are we conformed and transformed to love God and others more than self, or are we still operating on fear and selfishness? Watching out for number one. It's a reality thing again. So proclaiming loyalty to God means nothing. Claiming you're a Christian doesn't matter if you haven't had a change of heart. Isn't that true? Could you say, on the other hand, that not claiming you're a Christian, but if you have the heart of Christ? Yes. So, how about Paul, who said he was the worst of all sinners, the chief of sinners in the whole world, and didn't work? So he's lost because he proclaims he's the worst of all sinners in the world. That proclamation didn't make him lost either, did it? It's the condition of the heart, because he was humble, because he didn't trust self, because he trusted love, because he loved God. I would gladly give my lives that my fellow Jews might live. Even though he thought detestable things about himself, that he was unworthy, he was actually conformed and transformed because he was self-sacrificial in love. So our declarations are, are inconsequential. And the stamp of our culture is inconsequential, or the... The membership in a organization or our labels, our cultural labels are inconsequential. It's the state of our heart. Which is it back to design law, reality, actually changing what's broken in us and fixing us and healing us. Matthew twenty-one forty-three. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruits. What's being taught in this passage? Understanding the kingdom of God as you do, why would the kingdom of God be taken away from them? Already been on their own works and not not God. They are depending on their own works, no question. They're not producing fruits. They're not producing fruits, no doubt about that either. 
Oh, now we're getting close. Yes, see, both those statements are true. So the question is, why are they not producing any fruits? Is it because God is restrictive with his truth? God is restrictive with his love. God is restricted with his heavenly resources that would heal and transform. Is that why they're struggling and doing it all on their own? Because they have no help from heaven. Or who does God offer his kingdom to? So if somebody has it taken away from them, this is a one way to phrase it, what's really happening? Why is it removed from someone's life? They're rejecting it, yes. And why do others become um, participants in it? Because they're choosing it. This is, this is the, the action point I wanted you to say. That's right. So God's kingdom is about freedom now. We're learning about the freedom and liberties we have in God's kingdom. This is Matt, uh, Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of, of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near, Jesus is saying. What, what's he talking about? That his crucifixion was going to absolutely be final proof of God's position, and that was near. Other thoughts? So Jesus was near. Jesus was on hand. Of course, what he was about to achieve to fulfill God's purposes. Reveal was loads of healing was yet to take place. And all the ultimate revelation of God's character, Christ's character, and of Satan's character was yet to take place. When John preached the kingdom of God is at hand, was John referring to a kingdom of might and power? He thought he was. I don't think he was. I, I don't. I, I think he's, your, your sandals are not... But, but he did have questions afterwards, too. Yeah, so maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Yeah. Okay, then let's, when Jesus referred to the kingdom of God, was Jesus referring to a kingdom of might and power? No. Um, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Did the people, did it fit their view of God's kingdom? No. So Jesus is there saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's nigh. It's, it's, it's here. It's happening. Did their view of the kingdom of God obstruct their ability to participate? And how did they view it? What were they expecting? So now translate that whole dynamic that you just processed through. Okay, kingdom was actually there. Jesus is here. He's promoting his methods. Greater love is no man that he gives his life for a friend. He's teaching the whole way God's kingdom works. Yet they had ideas that God's kingdom should work this way, and their ideas didn't fit with what he's teaching, so they rejected it and didn't participate. That they were his chosen. Chosen descendants of Abraham to be the, the priesthood of, of, of nation, to, to, so forth. What is being taught by the majority of Christianity about what to expect regarding the second coming? He will come and reign and destroy the wicked. Yes. They are destined for hell. You're destined for yes. So are they teaching? Do they have? We have an expectation in Christianity that could do the same thing that happened to the Jews. That we have, we're looking for a different kingdom than the actual kingdom of God. We're looking for another, another kingdom of might and power, a kingdom of wrath, a kingdom of punishment, a kingdom to, to make the wicked pay. Could it mean more, the kingdom of God is more like the truth is here for you to now decide. When the, when the truth comes near you, you should accept it, not put it off, not wait. The kingdom is near, the truth is here. Now's your day of decision. You know, don't put it off. 
Uh, for individual level, absolutely, yeah, sure. means that as well. Jesus, When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. That was Mark 10, 14 and 15. What do we learn about the kingdom of God from this? Nothing to be afraid of, and mind and power and <clears throat> a vindictive, destructive God would frighten a child to death. Okay, so it's it's children are not afraid in coming to a God of love. If we incite fear in children, we're doing something wrong. And and as you're thinking about this, we must be like little children. Maybe you're thinking also what Paul said, when I was a child, I felt like a child, I acted like a child, but when I'm an adult, I put away childish things. Or what he said in Hebrews 5, you're still, you're infants, still on milk. You should be mature by now on meat. Those, those infants still on milk, you're not, you're not, you're, those babies, you children, you're not, you're not acquainted with righteousness yet. So, when you put this idea of we must be like little children, are we incorporating what Paul's talking about there? There's a certain aspect of childishness we're not supposed to be like. Be like the child who wrote that essay. Okay, and 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 what is that? With a, an accurate knowledge of the kingdom of God, but an adult kid, an adult understanding of the kingdom of God, but is trusting as a child. There we go. How does a child trust their parent if it's a loving parent? Yeah. So if the child came home from first grade, and this, we're going to assume this is a. A loving, nurturing parent, not an abusive parent, okay? Everybody with me? And the child comes home from school, first, second grade, and the, and the parent says to the child, I got a present for you. It's in the closet. You can go get it. What does the child do? You, you, do you mean it? You, you really think? I wonder if there's really something in the closet. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's not something there. What, yeah, is there a snake or a rock in the closet? Do they start doubting? I mean, seriously, what is the child's attitude? If the mom or dad said, I got a present for you today, it's in the closet, you can go get it. What do they do? Do they doubt? Do they waver? Do they have uncertainty? Do they, are they afraid of what's in the closet? Or are they absolutely joyful, excited, running to the closet to get the present? And, it's a good thing. Be, and notice, they're already experiencing the joy of the present before they even get it. See, the presence in our heavenly closet, life eternal, mansions in heaven, a new heaven, new earth, um, uh, even the, the restoration of our lost loved ones to us, this is all the presence we're promised. Do you believe the one who said it like a child? So we can rejoice in that as we run towards the closet to get the present? Or do we doubt and waver? And I'm not sure, maybe, maybe he's not, maybe there's nothing in the closet. Maybe, that, maybe I'm being tricked. Maybe he's going to laugh at me when I get there. See, Unless we accept like a little child. In other words, we have that, that confidence in our Heavenly Father that we know Him so well and we know His love so much that we don't doubt when He promises these things. It's going to happen. We don't know exactly when, but it's going to happen. Do you have the joy of that? Do you have the confidence of that? Maybe this is the part that He's talking about to be like a little child. And I also think teachable. Children are teachable. Children don't have their minds filled up with everything that they know everything already. And so we, mu- we must remain open and teachable to follow the evidence of truth. But that doesn't mean gullible. So like this, this girl who wrote the essay we read this morning, this Sammy. If somebody tried to come tell her today, she's, and she's still a child, that God is angry and wrathful and he's going to burn you in hell, she's not gullible. She goes, uh-uh, 
No, something's wrong with that. And if they quote her Bible text, it sounds angry and wrathful. She might go, you know, I, I can't explain that text, but I know there's something wrong with your interpretation. Yes, yes, yes. I've heard it stated that if a teacher's not teachable, you want to, probably want to change classes. You know, it's somebody you want to keep following because uh, things change. So make sure whoever's teaching you is teachable. And how many times have I said in this class, uh, no, a couple of things. One, we never want to arrive at the truth because when you arrive, you put down your roots and you stop growing. We always want to be advancing and moving forward, learning more, knowing we're all finite. And I'm not here to be anyone's mind. I'm not here to teach any of you what to think. I'm here to challenge you all to weigh it out, come to your own conclusions. Mark 12, 28 to 34, it says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, Teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no, no other than him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from them on, no one dared ask him any more questions. But what do we learn about the kingdom of God from this passage? Um, that it has to do with love. Okay, and and, love, love, love. and is love and is love and what is love then? Is it a, is it merely an emotion, an affection, a, a compassionate attitude? Is that all it is? It's a mindset. And it's a way of life. It's a way of life. It's a mindset. The way of life. Yeah. What do you mean by the way of life, Russell? It's the way life was designed to operate. So it's the fulfillment of the law according the, to Scripture. That's exactly right. Because God is love, and he has constructed everything to operate on this principle. So all reality, as God designed it, is an expression of love in some form or fashion. Yes? I appreciate it when you shared with us a while back how the sons and daughters of God came together to have this concert when the earth was created, and that reminds us that the nine sheep in the wilderness, the whole rest of the cosmos operates this way. We're the one speck of cosmic dust that thinks selfishness works. Yes, Exactly. Exactly. So what kind of law is the law of love? Can you, so when it says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, can love be commanded? Brian, I command you to love me. So love is the source of life. God is love. Love is the source of, that is who God innately is. Yes, and so even the language, the greatest commandment, yes, it's true. But can it be commanded? It can't be. It's the so we're back to it's the greatest law in the sense of law of gravity, law of thermodynamics, design protocol for life. Yes, it is the greatest because this is how things are built. But it can't be in, commanded with a coercive threat or authoritarian dictation over somebody. Yes, love is the only thing that provides nurtures the concept of the circle within the circle within the circle. Everything else breaks that circle. Everything else makes that makes that dysfunctional. When I hear command, I think of the way he commanded Elijah to come forth. I think it denotes that there's power in um, God saying that you, I can, I can write in your hearts. I could create a new heart within you. The creative power follows that command. It's not like you have to do it. 
but there's a creative force behind it that God is able to fulfill his purpose in your life. I like that. That's very beautiful. Yeah, I think so. So God's commands are for our good, but because of the way he always operates in harmony with his own design nature, when it comes to our individual recreation, he doesn't command over our own wills. So his command has the power for those who partake of it. Correct. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Think of the statement, if you love me, keep my commandments. Yeah. That's a promise. Yeah. This is the way I want to make you into. And how and how has that often been misconstrued? Of course, it's like, it's like our DNA with kingdom. We are kingdom with the earthly kingdom. We are commandment, and we think uh, a an order from a dictator. Yeah. I command you follow this pathway. Take that hill. Whatever. But it's also about behaviors. Yes, oftentimes, isn't it? If you love me, be sure you have the TV off by sunset Friday night. Oh, I love you. And then it's often heard, thank you. It's often heard back. If, and if you aren't, then you aren't being loved. Yeah, his love is restrictive. This is how it gets perverted. It's not the way it truly is, but it can, it can be uh, misconstrued this way. That's good. Luke 16, 16 and 17. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than the least stroke of the pen to drop out of the law. I, I, I had to bring this one up because this one is so often used as a um, battering ram in the face of Christians who keep the law, the rules, the day of worship and such differently than we do. Batters them. Boom! See, not one, one stroke of the pen. It would be easier for heaven and earth to, to disappear. The rules have not been changed, and you're not keeping the right rules. I've heard this presented this way over and over again. But what's actually being taught here about this? That, that's a misconstruing of what's being taught. What's actually being taught here? What do you hear? If you change the world, then it would be to change God's character. Oh, now that's a nice, succinct way to say it. Yeah. Witnesses. And I'm going to unpack that here in a minute. That, that, that needs to be unpacked some more. That's really nice. What would you say? Heaven and earth would disappear mm-hmm. if you changed it. So, yes, because what kind of law is God's law? Design law. Things are built, right? So design protocols, that reality exists, the fabric of the cosmos lives upon. To change the law would be to change those protocols. And thus the reality as we know it ceases to exist. But why he says it's easier for that to happen than to change the law? Because there was a time in eternity past before God began creating when the universe and the earth didn't exist. But God still did exist. And his character of love and his law of love still did exist. So we could go back into a time in eternity past where the universe was gone and it's easier to do that. It's easier to do that than to change God's character. I think is what he's saying. But this is only true. You only get to this understanding when you understand God's law's design law. If you're still operating under imperial imposed law constructs, then one believes God's law could change if God were willing to give new edicts. If God would give new rules, then God could change it. But God is uncompromising and he won't change his rules and he gets mad when he breaks his rules. Therefore, God must punish the rule breakers because he's going to enforce those rules because he won't change them. Or that God's character is not already in itself completely, totally perfect. And that 
because it's not perfect. It could morph into this or morph into that. It can't change because there is nothing to change into that could be better than it is. Yes, exactly. On this one only, I'm just going to share with you this, this version from the remedy. And, uh, but the rest of them I won't, but this one. It says, The symbols and metaphors of the Old Testament were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of what it all means, the reality of the true remedy from God's kingdom of love is being made known. And it is compelling all who understand to partake and enter. It is easier to erase heaven and earth and start again than to change the slightest in the slightest God's design protocols for life, what you call his law. All right, this is the next one. Luke 17, 20, and 21. Once having been asked by a Pharisee when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. What are we learning? What does this tell us about the kingdom of God? It's character. Again, it's character. What's it not? The external system of government. An external system of government, and that doesn't have to be... Um, municipal government, it could be religious government, or what we might call ritual, or doctrine, or creeds, or fundamental beliefs. Yes? Yes. Are we saved by having the right fundamental beliefs? No. no. Are we saved by doing the right rituals? No. No. God's kingdom is, about, again, about reality. What actually exists? Are we in harmony with how he's constructed life to operate and his own character and nature being restored in a trust relationship? Or are we still acting selfishly and living out of harmony with that design? And I'm going to tell you, rule-keeping approach to religion, in my view, inevitably and invariably ends up focusing on self and breaking the law of love. When you focus on keeping the rules, see, the law of love will always do what's best for the other in harmony with God's design. And depending on what's happening in the, in the environment, the circumstance, the situation, the action is dictated by what's actually best in that situation. Rule keeping can't, comp- can't deal with that. That's why rule keeping, the Sabbath, you're not to work. Uh, healing people on Sabbath is, is, uh, is working. You're breaking the rule. Therefore, you shouldn't do that. You should let people suffer. Yes. I think what we've got going on in our country right now is the perfect classic example of that. We make rules, and then those rules aren't adequate, so we make more rules, and those rules aren't adequate, and we make more rules, and it just gets more complicated, but the situation doesn't get any better. There's no question. You cannot change a heart with legislated rules. And religious systems do. Look at the religious system of Christ's day. They've done the same thing. Exaction and rule and exaction and rule upon exaction and rule upon exaction and rule. All the things you're supposed to do. And they became harder and harder and more corrupt, not, not more righteous. And you can never provide a safe environment with legislative rules. And so the more you make rules, get your mind around this, where does it focus the attention of the, of the worshiper who's, who's on a rule-keeping system? Where's their attention focused? On whom? 
it focuses invariably back on self, which means we take our eyes off Christ and we're not loving God and others more. We're not outward moving. We're not giving. We're not beneficent. We're focused on ourselves, ourselves in various ways. We're focused on making sure we don't do the wrong things to get a bad check mark against us in the book of heaven. But then because we know we've done bad things and got bad check marks against us in the book of heaven, we stay focused on ourselves and the plan of salvation. And we teach all the self-referenced uh, plans of, well, I'll accept the blood and it'll race it out of the book or I'll be covered with the robe and father can't see me or in the judgment when the judgment comes, uh, he'll judge Jesus in my place and put that in my account. And, and it's all focused on self. It's all self-focused. This one is John 3.3. 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And as you contemplate the meaning of this, just remember in Revelation, it says the following. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. We take Jesus at his word, that means those who are unconverted, the unborn again, if you want to use that phraseology, can't see the kingdom of God. But Revelation says that when he comes in his glory, every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. Does it not? So, how do you put the two together? They're both true, but how do you understand it? Seeing and experiencing are different things. Those who, it says, um, no one can see the kingdom of God unless, though, unless he is born again. Didn't say experience it. It says see it. Right. They can't see it. They can't experience it, though. Yeah. Seeing means, how do, you, how do you say this? You'll never see such and such. It doesn't mean you'll never see it. It means you'll never be there. Okay. I don't like the expression when you're having a discussion. Oh, I see. So we're talking not visual sight. We're talking mental understanding comprehension. Seeing, and, here's, and so what is it they're not seeing unless they're born again? What is it specifically? Boil it down to reality. Yes. Sasko Mood had a really good quote that counsels the education, page 74, and it goes like this. says, The teacher from heaven, no less a personage of the Son of God, came to the earth to reveal the character of the Father to men, that they may worship him in spirit and truth. Christ revealed to men the fact that the strictest adherence to the ceremony and form would not save them, for the kingdom of God was spiritual in its nature. Almost through here. Christ came to the world to sow it with truth. He held the keys to all the treasures of wisdom and was able to open the doors of it. Two science to real undiscovered stories of knowledge were essential to salvation. He presented to men that which was exactly contrary to the representation of the enemy in regards to the character of God and sought to impress upon men the paternal love of the Father and so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, so beautiful quote. How does that apply to this question? And it does. How does it apply to this question? Those who are, un, un, are not born again cannot see the kingdom of God. What are they not seeing? They don't see the character of God, the true character of God. Do they see the, the brightness, the glory, the power of the second coming? Do they see that? Absolutely they see that. You can see those things. Yes, they see the power. And, they, and what did the demons see when they saw Christ? A tormentor. There you go. If you come to torment us and torture us. And what are, the, what are the unrepentant, the unconverted, those who have not been born again, what do they see at the second coming? An alien invasion, a tormentor, a destroyer, someone who is to be feared, and they run and beg for the mountains to hide on them. So they see the power, the might, the energy, the strength. But that's not God's kingdom. This is the point. All of that is not God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of love. And they do not see the love or character of God. They don't see it at all. 
They believe the lies completely and they believe that God is the kind of being Satan has said he is. Arbitrary, severe, unforgiving, punitive. And they fear that he's coming to torture them just like the demons. If you come to torture us! And that's what they fear. That's right. And the gate... And when the gate, when the New Jerusalem's on earth and the gates are open and the wicked are raised, nobody comes in. Because what do they think's in there? They think Taliban terrorists with infinite power are in there to torture them. To judge them. To judge them and punish them. Yes. So, Romans 14, 17. We're almost done with these. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What do you hear from this one? It's about, no, what it, it's about what kind of laws are being contrasted. It's not a matter of eating and drinking, but about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about transformation of heart again, loving God and others more than self, having the law written on the heart and mind. Can you get any of that by eating the right foods? By having a very strict diet, can you renew your heart? No, you cannot. But, but that being said, can a person violate God's design laws with a wrong diet in such a way that they damage their brains and inflame their impulses and selfishness to make it harder to experience God's kingdom of love. In other words, can a person ingest illegal drugs, inflame their cravings and their selfishness, so they're seeking constantly to get, get their next fix, get their next fix to the point they have lost, or, or maybe not lost completely, but have significantly impaired their capacity to love others because they're just interested in themselves. Can you do that only with drugs? Or can you do that with food and, and, and drink? Yes, so you can't eat your way and diet your way into heaven. But you can put obstacles in the way to make it harder for you to love others by making yourself more craving for your next fix, whether it's your sugar fix, your chocolate fix, your caffeine fix, your cocaine fix, whatever. i got to get mine. i got to get mine. Yes, way in the back. It's sort of an interesting one. Unfortunately, there are many canes offering their veganism on the altar as it is God's requirement. There are many Cain's, as Cain and Abel, offering their vegan lifestyle as if it is the requirement that you must uh, sacrifice. This is what I must offer to God, my vegan lifestyle, and then he will accept me because I've offered my proper lifestyle to him. I I see what you're saying. I think there are people that are operating that way. And it doesn't have to be a vegan lifestyle. It could be other things. Just substitute anything doing it because they're they're operating still under imposed law. They're they're living in fear. They're afraid if they don't eat the right foods. They've read somewhere, well, only vegetarians will be translated into heaven. And if I should, uh, you know, if I should, um, you know, eat some jello that was had some animal product in it, then I can't be translated. I've got to go the underground route. And, um, you know, this this type of thing. Because they're still worshiping under this, and it's not about the heart. I think what I've... What do you think about the, the suggestion I've made here that the diet is important in relationship to how it inflames certain neural circuits and makes it harder for us to... to and makes it, it makes it harder for us to be compassionate because we're interested in only fixing the next fix for ourselves. What's well, natural law? Still yeah. yeah, yeah. But we still, eating the right foods, can't get ourselves into heaven. Yes. So Matthew fifteen eleven, Jesus says, whatever goes into a mouth doesn't make him unclean is what comes out. So here Jesus is talking about, it's like, what's, what's in your heart is more important than what you're actually eating and, and drinking. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, you said that it's okay to tithe even down to your mint and your herbs and stuff, but do it for the right reason. So if people are being careful of their diet, I mean, in, you know, we're having counsel private towards the end of the days. It looks like animal foods yeah. will be unfit for human consumption. He said it was okay 
not necessary. (laughs) Meaning if you, just like Paul in Romans 14, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. If you live under this conviction and you would feel guilty and ashamed and like you're out with God if you don't do certain things, well then keep your conscience clear and do them. But it doesn't mean it's required. Uh, This is uh, 1 Corinthians 4.20. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What are we learning about the kingdom of God here? It isn't what one, again, I really want to emphasize this. It's not what one claims, proclaims, or names. It's about the condition of what exists in the heart and mind of the believer. Yes. Going back just one, um, you're talking about help. In, in the sermon this morning, um, they've quoted from the, the scientific um, journal article of circulation. And it says, warns that a person who is prone to anger is three times more likely to have a heart attack than someone who is least prone to anger. Those things that we ingest are diet, but are also those things we ingest are ideas. Yes, yes, this is well said. Will also change our lives and make it more difficult for us to see the kingdom of heaven. And so let me explain for those, those who are angry and resentful and don't forgive and hold on to that bitterness, they activate stress circuits, which activate immune system, which kicks up inflammatory cytokines, which cause insulin resistance, which cause um, the entire arteriosclerosis. They, uh, the insulin resistance causes uh, elevated glucocorticoids and blood glucoses. You get um, advanced glycation end products, which are inflammatory, that cause uh, high de- uh, low-density lipoproteins to fill in your coronary arteries, and you get heart attacks and strokes. I mean, we can see this whole pathway naturally right down the line because of holding resentment and stuff. We can see, track it all the way down. Boom. So it's ideas that we ingest as well as food. Yes, absolutely. Ideas we ingest, including ideas about God. This is the, and these were, the, these were the prime ideas. Prime, meaning first, primals. Number one, ideas of discord that caused the whole thing. It was the disruption in people's ideas about God in heaven and then in Eden that caused all this. So these are always the... The core ideas. And then last one of these Kingdom of God Bible quotes is Revelation chapter 12, 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. This is huge. This is just ginormous when you're looking through design law stuff. It's magnificent. Do you hear what's being said here? What's being taught in this passage? What kingdom? Well, okay, there's some symbolic language. Blood of the lamb, what's the symbolic of? Red corpuscles? We talking red corpuscles? No, the life of Jesus, which is the life of God's character perfectly rebuilt into the human being, the human species, because of what Christ did on earth. So the blood of the lamb is the perfect human life in harmony with God's design. And the word of their test. So they overcame by the, the, the character of Christ that they possess. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So the blood of Christ is within me. We've partaken of Jesus. And the word of their testimony. What is the word of their testimony? The expression of that character. So fear God and give glory to him. So what's it mean to give glory to him? Represent his character. To give a proper testimony. And so what is the remnant? The remnant are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the 
testimony of Jesus, right? What's the testimony of Jesus? In Revelation 19, some translations say the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Other translations say the testimony of Jesus is the spirit that inspired the prophets. In other words, the prophets were inspired by the same spirit that Jesus had come upon him in the form of the dove that empowered him to live the perfect life and reveal the truth about God's character. Thus, the testimony of Jesus is the truth about his father, that if you see me, you've seen the father, the father and I are one, and thus those who are in this group who give the testimony of their, the word of their testimony, give the same word of God's character that Jesus revealed. They're in harmony with revealing God and giving glory to him for the hour in nurse history where people are to make a right judgment about God. God has come, and they need us to stand up and show God is like this, not like this. These are the people, because they've partaken of Christ's character, they can give the right revelation of God's character to others, give the right testimony. And what does that look like? They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death, meaning they're not survival the fittest, focusing on me, fear, protect self. They self-sacrificial, greater love is no man than to give his life for his friend. They'll give for others. This is the testimony of Jesus, not the red leather books. Tim, Jesus said that uh, it was expedient for him to leave so that the Holy Spirit could come and teach all the things of the kingdom and of his Father. So when we try to focus too closely on just Jesus or just Jesus' words, like say take all the the red words in the the New Testament or something as opposed to the black words, we're, we're really missing the point. I think, because it's it's more about, you know, in, ingesting the whole character of God and, you know, the purpose of His presence on this earth. And so, yes, and so with that regard, I don't want to d- diminish the value of the red leather books for those who know what I'm speaking of, because I think the person who wrote them partook of the blood of Jesus, the character of Jesus, and had the spirit that gave the same testimony about God's character. And when you read those, those resources, you will find this beautiful character of God being revealed there. But just claiming that, that an organization has that, um, those reference series in the organization means the organizational system is now this, is, is missing the point. It's about the believers who are living representatives of God, partaking of Christ and having his character revealed through them such that they give this right testimony about God and don't take a, uh, a arbitrary God construct and just simply replace one set of creeds, rules, fundamental beliefs with another set and then say, if you don't believe ours, well, we've got the right set, you've got the wrong set, and God, we believe, is a God of justice and he will come and he will kill you and punish you because you didn't believe the right set. That is not the proper testimony. That's a false testimony. The true testimony is the testimony that Jesus gave about his, about his father's character that you see revealed throughout his entire life. There's so much more in our lesson. We're really running out of time fast. I'm going to skip Sundays, and there's some good stuff in Sundays. Jump to Mondays. It says, read Luke 18, 29, and 30. It says, I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of God statement again, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and the age to come, eternal life. And then the paragraph, the last paragraph in, the, in that uh, day, it says, um, Read again Luke 18, 29, 30, which we just read. What is Jesus saying to us, and what is he promising? To to have to leave parents, spouse, even children for the kingdom of God? That's a demanding commitment, is it not? Jesus is not saying that these actions are required of all believers, but that if one were called to leave these things for the sake of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God would be worth it. 
What are your thoughts about this passage of Jesus and, and the commentary from the lesson? Any thoughts? What is being taught by Jesus here? How do you understand it? How, maybe, maybe you guys should practice contrasting. If you're operating under an imperial system, what is, what is Jesus saying? If you're operating under a design system, what is Jesus saying? Under imperial system, you have, you have given your oath of loyalty to someone other than me. And since you've given your oath of loyalty, you pledge your allegiance to a different flag, then you can't be in my kingdom because you can only be in my kingdom if you put your oath of loyalty to me first. That's, that's imperialism. Go ahead, and we'll come to the design law in a minute. Yes. Thinking about um, the ones that would not love their lives even to the death, Jesus loved his father because of love. So it's just following the principle of love. You know, if your principle is love, and you're required, and that love requires you to leave your, your parents, then follow that principle. I love where you're going with this. This is great. So then, think under design law. How would love, if you're operating in love, require one to leave one's family? How would that work? How about, under design law, you and your whole family are infected with, with anthrax. You're all dying with an anthrax infection, you and your whole family. There's a remedy, but you've got to go get the remedy. Do you stay to nurture them, to, you know, to put claws on their heads with fever, or do you love them enough that you leave to get the remedy because you're sick yourself and you can't administer the remedy until you first partake the remedy? This is how God's kingdom works. You can't share the love of God unless you've experienced the love of God. You can't share the truth of God unless you've understood the truth of God. So you've got to leave to partake of the only remedy that will heal the ones you love, your family. Does that make sense? Makes sense. Yeah, so your love then, but if, if, we, if we are sentimental, if we are actually selfish in our codependency, that we can't, I couldn't think of, of going on without this person, then we restrict ourselves and we, we, we will stay there and we all die together. I've seen this in some of my patients. They won't do what's healthy for someone in the family because it hurts them too much to do it. I, I, I couldn't, I've seen women who've been, be, been beaten in, in relationships by their husbands. And it's destructive to the character of the abuser for them to beat their wives. It sears their conscience, warps their character. Understand, it's not just damaging to the one who's being beaten. The one who's being, doing the beating is destroying his character, hardening his heart. But the woman will often not leave because she's afraid. She's insecure. I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't tolerate being by myself. This is not an act of love to stay. But they will often frame it. But I love him too much to leave. But it's really fear of being alone that keeps them to stay. Wasn't that Adam's thing? He couldn't bear the thought of being alone without Eve? Perhaps, but also perhaps, in a certain way, uh, Satan was a very good liar. And there was a truth, you know, the most powerful lies are those that have truth mixed with. And one of the truths mixed with the lie, the lie was you will not surely die. That was the lie, you won't die. The truth was, God, the God you know, he loves you too much. He won't, he won't kill you. Do, you. do you see the subtle difference? If you, and so Adam has this idea in his head. Well, I've walked with Jesus every day. He's so loving. He's so kind. Uh, he'll forgive me. He'll forgive me. Was that true? Of course it was true. Did it change the consequence of what he did to himself? No. And this is what was not understood. Reality was not understood. God's law of love was not understood. God's character, ultimately how things are built, were not understood. But Satan presented it in the imperialistic view and as if 
you know, the only problem with doing this is, is if you, if you're, if you have a God who is a dictator, he'll punish you. If your God is so loving and kind and won't punish you, then you can take this with her. It's no, no big deal. Oh yeah, that's the God I know. He won't punish me. He loves me that much. He'll forgive us. And I don't want to lose her, so I'll do that and then we'll go both, we'll both get forgiven. You can see how this imperial idea could have infected him. I guess that implies that Adam was deceived as well. I mean, my understanding was he, he made a choice knowing full well the consequences. And I, I, may, I may be way off base on that. So he knew full well that Jesus was going to come and die for him? No. He, he made the choice to follow. He, because you listened to your wife, he made the choice to follow his wife. Because my understanding is he didn't want to, he didn't reason through cause and effect enough to think that God could make him another mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so maybe you're saying he, he was at that point, prior to the fruit, self-sacrificial enough that he's saying, well, if you're going to die, I'll die with you. No. No? <laughs> Just an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> because as soon, you know, there is an argument to be made that I like that argument that before he took it, he's still, he's still a loving being. And he goes, you know what? Right, I mean, you, you know what? You're going to die. I love you so much. I'll die with you. I don't want to lose you. I'll die with you. But as soon as he eats the fruit, well, it wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. Right. <laughs> Throws her under the bus. Right. So I like that too. That, that's a good alternative. I like it. Well, we're out of time. There's so much good stuff in the lesson. I just encourage you to check out the notes. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love and and that we do know that you are not the source of inflicted pain and suffering, but that when we deviate from your design, it brings with it pain and suffering and destruction. And that because you loved us so much, that Jesus came to restore this creation back into harmony with you and, and your design for love. And, and we open our hearts now that the Spirit will come and take all that Christ has achieved that we might become partakers of the divine nature. It may no longer be that our own fear self-living, but, but the loving, trusting character of Jesus being reproduced within us, that we can be overcomers by the character of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, and give a proper testimony about your true character. We pray in your holy name. Amen.